It is good to see you all this good Friday night. And I don't know how many of you remember an old comic strip called B.C. And the characters were cavemen-like characters. And Johnny Hart was an on-fire Christian who would make these uh, comic strips for the newspaper every week. And I just happened to see one today that uh, addressed a question I think that is always on our minds. And it had one of these cavemen characters sitting on a huge rock looking out over a massive expanse of nothingness. And the little bubble above his head said, why do they call it Good Friday? And his friend had walked up behind him and he said, well, if you were going to be executed on a Friday and somebody offered to take your place, what would you call it? (laughs) The guy said, good. And the other guy said, enough said. Well, that's exactly what took place this day. And rather interestingly, we are here on Passover. Tonight is the night where the Seder dinner is recognized and practiced by the Jews. And obviously it's already uh, tomorrow in Israel. But I love that we are here on Good Friday, on the very day that it ought to be every year. I don't know how Passover and Resurrection Sunday get separated in some years, but they shouldn't be. Uh, It should always be the following Sunday after Passover that we recognize the resurrection of Christ. Now, we're going to take a look at a passage of Scripture this evening. It's very brief, and if you'd like to open your Bibles, or if you don't have one, it'll be up on the screen, to 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to look at another wonderful 3.16. It's not John 3.16, but rather it's 1 John 3.16. Now, I'll remind you, if you were here with us this past Palm Sunday, that we found ourselves mingling with a crowd who had met outside of Jerusalem, part of which had come up from Bethany because Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead after being four days in the tomb. And then there was another group coming out of Jerusalem who met the group coming up from Bethany. And they too wanted to see this Jesus who could do such an incredible thing as raise a man from the dead who had been long dead. Now, the collective group shared the same thought process and they were thinking, listen, if this guy can do something like that, that's the kind of guy we want to have as our king. That's the kind of power that can overthrow the oppressive empire of Rome. Now, Interesting that it is true that there are many messianic prophecies in the Old Testament and in the New, especially later in the book of Revelation, where we're told very clearly that Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior and mine, is going to come back and rule the world with a rod of iron. Somebody say amen. Amen. Now we know that that is true. But the problem was this crowd, or many of them, as well as the Jews collectively, for the most part, they missed all the prophecies concerning the Messiah's suffering, death, and resurrection. Those were the ones they needed to pay attention to because that is why he came the first time. He's coming again apart from sin for the purpose of, one, we're going to meet him first in the air and forever be with the Lord. And then he's coming back to the earth to sit on David's throne and rule as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, Luke 24, 25 to 27, we're told that he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? 
And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. Now, remember, this is Old Testament scripture, the things concerning himself. Now, this was the majority of the Jewish mindset. They, like the two disciples we just read about on the road to Emmaus, on the very day that Jesus rose from the dead, they did not recognize that the Holy One of Israel was coming first to save them from their sin, not deliver them from Rome. Now, we noted on Sunday that when the words of Jesus were not of world dominance and uh, domination of all things, uh, not just of Rome, but also the world, but rather he began to talk of his gruesome death. He began to talk of deny yourself and follow me, that the cries of coronation quickly turned into a call for his crucifixion. Now we're told in John 19, 14 and 15 that it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king, Pilate speaking, but they cried out away with him, away with him, do what? Crucify him. The same crowd that wanted to make him king some four days later cried out, crucify him. Now we're told about the preparation day. And the preparation day was the day that the Passover lamb was to be slain in celebration of the following Passover Sabbath. It's the day we call Good Friday. Now, as we consider the events of this holy week, I cannot help but think of the fact that Jesus came to earth knowing full well all that he was going to experience. Jesus, when he came to earth, he knew the sting of the whip was going to reach his back. He knew that the stripes that would bring about our healing were going to tear the tissue on his back all the way down to the bone. He knew that some he came to save were going to spit in his face while others pulled the beard from it. He knew a crown of three-inch thorns was going to be pressed down upon his head and cause excruciating pain. He knew that nails were going to be mercilessly driven into his hands and feet. He knew there was going to be a spear that would pierce his side and puncture the sack around the heart and water and blood would flow out. He knew these things, but he still came. He came because he loves this world and you and I. He came for the purpose of dying for our sins that we might become reconciled to God and have that which was forfeited in the garden by the sin of man restored. This is why they call today Good Friday. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20 says, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for who? Aren't you glad it doesn't say everybody but you? He was manifested for in these last times for you and for me. Listen, before the world was formed, the plan of God was in place to redeem man from his fallen state. And that means there is only one fitting title with Jesus coming into the world, knowing all that was going to happen to him. And our title tonight is simply Amazing Love. 
We're going to talk about the amazing love of Christ that would cause him to come and suffer for your sins and mine. And tonight we're going to examine but a single verse that is going to reveal to us actually three things regarding why Jesus came and why that plan had to be what it was. And the plan was for the sinless God-man to die for a sinful world. And what we're going to encounter tonight is simply the gravity of our sin, the richness of his love, And finally, we'll see the fullness of our assurance. And we'll find these three things from our verse tonight, once we arrive there in our second hour. (laughs) Ephesians 3, 14 to 19 says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's our mission tonight. To know the love of God. To be strengthened by the Spirit of God. To experience the fullness of God. And nothing says, I love you from heaven, more clearly than the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, I think we've all heard the adage, less is more. And though the words we're going to read tonight are few in number, they are less than what we normally would read, there is more depth and meaning in our verse tonight than we have the time to discuss. So, would you, as we always do, in honor of God's word, stand and read with me, please, our single verse for this night from 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. Read with me, please. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And Lord, we are very thankful for all that we sang about and have talked about thus far and now read. And we thank you, Lord, for your willingness to come, knowing full well what awaited you when you arrived wrapped in the likeness of sinful flesh to die for the sinners who had departed from following after you. We thank you that you are yet today a God of mercy, and yet we recognize you are still a God of order. So, Lord, would you order our thoughts tonight as we remember what was done on our behalf and all the brutality you endured that we deserve. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As I said, this one single verse has extremely profound implications. And the very fact the Lord has laid down his life for us, the very fact that such drastic measures had to be taken on our behalf, tells us something about the gravity of our sin. Now, Colossians expresses that gravity well in 121 and 22, where we're told, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he, Jesus, has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus, tonight. Now, I don't know that the gravity of our sin can be more painfully expressed than through the phrase, making us enemies of God. 
Our sin has made us an enemy of God. And this leads us to the first thing I want us to consider on this most blessed and sacred Eve. And that is simply this. Here's a point of recognition. Listen, here's why Jesus came or one of the reasons. Listen, sin put us in a humanly irreversible condition. Sin put us in a humanly irreversible condition. Now, I am sure we've all heard from some uninformed Bible critic, and there are many of them today, about the laws of God and how ridiculous some of them were and how unfair others were, at least in their minds. Well, listen, the Bible says in Leviticus 20.13, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman... Both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon who? Them. Deuteronomy 14.9 says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that has fins and scales, excluding any type of shellfish, obviously. And people often bring accusation against the Bible about how ridiculous these types of things were and are. And they try and use these types of things against the Lord being a God of love. But if we start with a basic understanding that in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, and therefore as creator, he is the rightful authority over all that he has created, then it's easy for us to understand that even the things that are hard for us to get our head around or wrap our brains around are things that we ought to recognize simply because the Lord is creator of all. Listen, I don't know about you, but God has never consulted me about what he ought to do. He's never asked me what I thought about the Ten Commandments. He never asked me if I thought he should have done things a different way initially and even through sending his son into the world. The fact is, God knows exactly what he's doing. And there's a reason for these things that we read in the Old Testament that are so hard for many to fathom and accept. And the point is that the strong stand against sexual immorality in the Old Testament is to remind us that there is something far worse that is going to happen to the unrepentant sexually immoral person than dying in the flesh. And that is the second death. And the truth is the Lord is just using these extreme things to warn us of what he was coming to save us from. Listen, we also need to recognize that the New Testament teaches we're not to judge regarding the foods that we eat, according to Colossians 2.16. Now, it's kind of interesting. How many have seen Ezekiel bread in Whole Foods and other stores? I mean, it's a recipe taken right out of the Bible. And they found it to be a very uh, nutritional, uh, nutritionally balanced bread. Nutritionists today who have studied the Bible's a kosher diet, so to speak, and the listings of clean and unclean foods in the Old Testament. And they say, you know what? That's a rather healthy diet to eat. And it's going to provide longevity for those who follow after it. Because we live, or the Bible was written in a time where modern safety techniques regarding food did not exist. And a diet consisting only of clean animals would have protected people against many health problems that could have developed in that day. Listen, the Bible's prohibition of eating shellfish in the Old Testament, which, as I said, is often a point of mockery, is because shellfish were kind of a filter or cleaning system in the ocean. It was interesting. Terry showed me a picture of two aquariums. I think it was just yesterday. They were rather large aquariums. And one, the water was cloudy and murky, and you couldn't even see the backside of the glass of this aquarium. And the one next to it was filled with shellfish, and the water was crystal clear and you could see right through it. 
And the point was that at least the people who put the picture up that they were trying to make was look how wonderfully nature is balanced. My first thought was look how much dirt shellfish eat. (laughs) Now, the Lord was simply saying, hey, you know what? I want you to be safe. I want you to eat food that is healthy for you. There was nothing bizarre about the things that the Lord had mandated in the Old Testament. And the law, according to the New Testament, kills. It points out that we are in need of a Savior. And the Lord was saying, you know what? These things are unhealthy for you morally and therefore physically. So I'm going to give you some guidelines by which you can live and enjoy life and have the expectation of being with me forever. Now, we know the law had no provision for salvation, but the law pointed to man's need for a savior. And indeed, that is the point of Jesus coming. And the point is this, God, by right of being creator, has the right to define right and wrong. Somebody say amen. God as creator has the right to define right and wrong. And since the Bible says he who offends in one point of the law is guilty of all in the book of James, meaning sin disqualifies us from heaven, sin also proves that we're born as sinners, there was absolutely no possible way that any human could ever be reconciled to God on his own. There was no way that anyone could do enough good deeds No ordinary human's death could spare us, thus making salvation through human efforts completely impossible. And therefore, God was going to have to repair the breach between him and fallen man. God was going to have to restore the relationship between he and fallen man. If man was ever going to be reconciled to God, God was going to have to do the work. And because of his amazing love, that's exactly what he did. He sent his son into the world. Listen, God knew man would sin and by sin separate themselves from him, causing some to ask, well, if God knew that man was going to sin, why in the world did he create him? Because he knew he was going to make a way for man to be reconciled to him, that whosoever will may come and be restored from his irreversible condition, irreversible from the human standpoint. Now listen, God did not want to create a group of mindless robots who had no choice but to obey him. He was looking to create a people who would choose to love him because the fact is, love is not possible without choice. So he created man with the ability to go against his will, to sin against him and make the choice to love God or fall into sin. And the gravity of man's sin is that sin put man in a humanly irreversible condition. But that humanly irreversible condition was going to be met with the richness of God's amazing love. Now this was manifested in God taking on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, dying a brutal death. And because death only has a right to those who have sinned, the grave couldn't hold Jesus and his crucifixion was not his end, but it was our new beginning. He is alive forevermore, but I don't want to get into Easter yet. Sin's price was paid. The gravity of our sin was met with the richness of his amazing love. And thus in John 10, 11, Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for who? The sheep. Remember what Isaiah said? All we like sheep have gone where? 
astray, but the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Listen, Jesus gave his life. No one took it. He said, I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to raise it up again. And he went to the cross willingly, knowingly, consciously giving his life because that was the plan before man ever sinned or even the worlds had been created. Now, here's the second thing I think we need to observe this good Friday night. And it's just this. Listen tonight. Nothing. Say nothing. Nothing could stop Jesus from doing what we could not do for ourselves. Nothing could stop Jesus from doing what we could not do for ourselves. Now, we were hopelessly lost if Jesus didn't go to the cross. And may I remind you, the devil didn't put Jesus on the cross. The Jews didn't put Jesus on the cross. The Romans didn't put Jesus on the cross. Love put Jesus on the cross. His love for you and I. And by this, we know the richness of his amazing love that he laid down his life for us. And we need to remember this Good Friday evening that God is a just God. It is impossible for him to do wrong. It is impossible for God to be wrong. And there's absolutely no chance of God ever denying his nature or changing his character and attributes. And 1 Peter 3.18 reminds us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the who? For the unjust. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Listen, a perfect, righteous, and just God cannot let sin go unpunished. Yet because of his amazing love, he paid our sin debt with his own life. Now I want you to think about this. God being who he is, God having the right to define right and wrong, God having the right to determine the means by which man could be reconciled to himself. He did not send his son into the world because of the gravity of sin and say, you know what, son, you're going to have to do three days and three nights in the jail and you're going to be with other prisoners. And then on Monday, I'm going to use that means to reconcile the world to myself. He didn't say, you know what, you're going to have your hand slapped a few times. And then after that, that'll satisfy my just nature. And then this whole thing will be put behind us. No, because of the gravity of man's sin, it required the brutality of the cross. And Jesus, because of his amazing love, knowing this fully in advance, went to the cross on our behalf. He was put to death in the flesh. Listen, it's been well said, and I think bears repeating tonight. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe because we owed a debt we could not pay. The cost for our sin was great. It could not be paid in human blood. It could not be paid in religious service. It could not be paid in good works. Because Leviticus 17.11 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. But it couldn't be just any blood. The Passover lamb said for 1,500 years, it had to be the spotless blood of a male lamb offered for the sins of the people. Now listen, a just God is only just if there is justice. And sin had to be recompensed, and Jesus was going to do just that, and nothing and no one was going to stop him. So think about this tonight. The incomparable and unstoppable God came in human flesh to pay the radical debt that you and I owed because sin had put all of us in a humanly irreversible 
condition. Listen, that's the richness of his amazing love. And in Luke 9, 20 to 22, he said to them, Jesus speaking, but who do you say I am? He just asked them, who do the, the people around here say that I am? Some said, oh, you're John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the other prophets. But he said, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must, what? Suffer. A couple of things? Many things. And be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised. When? Isn't that pretty clear? That he's going to be raised on the third day? So why wasn't there a crowd at the tomb early in the morning on the first day of the week? Jesus was very clear on his intentions. The Son of Man had to suffer. It had to happen. There were no other options. Mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, were hopelessly lost unless Christ suffered for our sins. And nothing was going to stop him from doing so. It was the plan from the beginning. And man's self-inflicted, humanly irreversible condition was unacceptable to a just and holy God. He had to do something because of his great love for us. Now, had God created man without the plan laid before the foundations of the world to reconcile us back to himself, then we could ask the question, what's the point of creating man at all if he knew that man was going to fall into sin and have no capacity to ever get back into a right relationship with God? Now, this is a solemn and sacred day where we recognize the gravity of our sin is met with the richness of his amazing love. In Isaiah 53, 4-6, we're told, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who? By God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of who? All of us, listen, he had to suffer, and he willingly did, in order to stop the eternal suffering that awaited us in hell. And yet, this is what the majority of the Jews missed. The very people he came into the world through and first preached the gospel to missed all of this, the vast majority of them. Yet from these few words tonight, we have seen the gravity of our sin met face-to-face with the richness of his amazing love. And from his actions, we too can see the fullness of our assurance. And John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Then he adds, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And the fullness of our assurance is very subtle here, and we need to be careful not to miss it. For John would also say in chapter 2 of the same epistle in 5 and 6, but whoever keeps his what? Word, truly the love of God is perfected in him or brought to its fullness or maturity. By this, we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he, Jesus, walked. Remember, walk is a metaphor for living out your life. Now, nothing could stop the gravity of our sin from being met with the richness of his amazing love. It was foreordained before the foundations of the world. But we also need to remember that his death brought us more than simply a positional change of status in the eyes of God. 
It also brought to us personal transformation. We begin to walk like him. And this is where we find the fullness of our assurance. In 1 John 2, 1 and 2, John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for what? The whole world. Jesus would also say in Matthew seven twenty one, as he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I, what's the next word? Not I once knew you, and then we had a broken relationship. He said, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Now, we know that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. That's what John just told us, right? He became the propitiation, the debt satisfaction for the sins of everybody in the world. Does that mean everybody's saved? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We know that not everyone is saved. We also know that according to Jesus, it's possible to know of him, yet not know him personally, as we just read in Matthew 7. So rather than wander through life wondering if you're really saved or if you've lost your salvation or can... God has given us a fullness of assurance through the means of personal transformation via the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And in Romans 6, 4, we're told, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in what? Newness of life. Then in Romans 12, 2, familiar verses, we're told, uh, or verse rather, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then another famous verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a what? New creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is the fullness of our assurance. This is how we can make our way through life, knowing that at the end of our days, heaven awaits us. And in this particular generation, I believe we're going to see that moment and twinkling of an eye experience where a trumpet is blown, there's a shout from heaven, the dead in Christ raised first, and we who are alive and remain will meet them and the Lord in the air, and thus forever be with them. And the fact is, we can have confidence, we can have assurance by noting that we walk in newness of life. Listen, when the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, you're going to be different than you used to be. And he changes all of us. There's no question about that. We walk in newness of life. In other words, the things that are important to us change. I remember for many, many years, it's all I could think about when I would wake up in the middle of the night is when I could wake up and start drinking again or what time would be an acceptable time to start drinking again. Listen, I don't think that way anymore. I haven't thought that way for over a month. (laughs) Actually, almost four decades is the truth of that story. Listen, and so I have assurance. I I know that he has saved me. 
I don't have to doubt that somehow I've been snatched from his hand or separated from his love. He's changing me. He's still working on me. He began a good work that he is going to complete. And this gives me a full assurance of the faith, knowing that when I die or the rapture happens, boom, I'm out of here. I'm going to be with him. And I have suggested on numerous occasions that the Lord choose to take me in the rapture and not the whole death thing. I just soon skipped that. What say you? I've told you before, I'm not afraid to die, but I have some concerns about the method. Now, here's what this tells us. Listen, because of the cross, his proven love can never be doubted. Because of the cross, his proven love can never be doubted. We cannot live this life and say, gee, I wonder if God is really loving. Gee, I wonder if God really loves me. I wonder if he really cares about my situation, about my plight. Listen, if you want to know if God loves you, you don't look to your circumstances. You look to the cross. That is God's expression of love to you. All of us have either known or experienced somebody that said, I love you, and then their actions were contradictory to their statement. We've all had that experience or heard of someone who has had it. Yet, Jesus isn't like that. His proven love for us is that he laid down his life for us. And our love for him, John says, is proven by doing the same, laying down our lives for the brethren. Now listen, this way we can know that we indeed have found and believed in that which he came to bring us. We change and begin to think and act more like him. And as I quoted Philippians a moment ago, we can be confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ or until you stand before him or meet him in the air. Now, listen. We may not all be what we should be in our reflection and representation of Christ. Oh, you guys aren't going to bite on that one, huh? We may not be all we should be in our reflection and representation of Christ, but the fact is that since he began a work, we can be assured he's going to finish it. He is going to bring about the completion of that work. Now, we know love, John says, because he laid down his life for us. We show love by laying down our lives for others. Love for him, that is. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to die for someone like he did, but it does mean we love others enough by telling them about the one who died for them. Listen, even when it brings persecution, even when it brings ostracization, the fact is that's what it means to lay down our lives, to set aside our own priorities, so to speak, so we can reach other people, help the brethren, esteem others better than ourselves. And our efforts are always to be to build up the church or lead others to Jesus Christ. Now in Matthew 16, 24 to 25, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and do what? Follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Will find it. Listen, this is the fullness of our assurance. His love for us is proven by his actions. And our love for him is proven by ours. You know, I was thinking again 
you know, just about the transformation. I remember as a young man, I'm sure some of you parents of teenagers have this experience. I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to get out of bed on a Sunday morning and be hauled off the church. I wanted to stay in bed and sleep. And a lot of Sundays, I would fake sleep, even do a little fake snoring. So hopefully my mom would leave me alone and not get me up for church. But I can't even count the number of times I'm playing dead on a Sunday morning. And I would feel through the sheets somebody wiggling my big toe and saying, get up and get ready for church. And I went and listen, nobody has to get me up for church now. I'm up and ready. As a matter of fact, you guys all give me your numbers and I'll text you when I get up on Sunday morning (laughs) at three o'clock. So you guys can be up and getting ready too. I can't sleep on Saturday night because I can't wait to get to church. Listen, that's what God has done. That's not me. That's him. That's transformation. That's assurance that he's working in me. My life has been changed. My interests are different than they used to be. The desires of my heart are nothing like they once were. And I don't have the power to make that happen. God has done that work in me and you. Now listen, this table in front of us tonight, we come to as a reminder of his amazing love. It's not a love communicated by words and contradicted by actions. It's a word spoken that is validated by actions. And it's a love that is so proven it's beyond doubt or question. Because the fact is, John 15, 13 reminds us, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? No longer do I call you servants, but I call you what? Friends. He laid down his life for us. I hope you know that love tonight. I hope some of the things we talked about early in the message haven't sent you off sideways following some type of rabbit trail inspired by the adversary, the devil, to get you off target of how much God loves you. Listen, the Old Testament was proving that God is a God of love, that There's no difference in the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. They are one in the same. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were active and present in all of creation. And they were active during the Old Testament period as well. And God was trying to warn humankind through the law that sin kills. And it not only does damage to the body, it also can destroy The soul and God wanted man to know that he was in need of a savior and he was sending one in the person of his own son. Listen, this assurance, this love in the face of the gravity of our sin is the very reason Jesus came into the world to demonstrate God's love in spite of the gravity of our sin. You see, this is what this table represents. Indisputable proof. Nobody can say that God is mean-spirited, that God is wanting to withhold things from people in a loving relationship or anything else. This table says, from heaven, I love you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus would also say, for as often as you do this, you proclaim, or Paul would say, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. You see, the Lord's death is what this weekend is all about. 
recognizing that the gravity of our sin was met with the richness, richness of his love and brought about a fullness of assurance that couldn't come through any other means. The body and blood of Jesus was offered on behalf of sinners like you and like me. And all I can say is, that's an amazing love. Somebody say, Amen.